This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. Returning God's Word this morning in two places, first in Matthew chapter 3, and then we turn to the Gospel of John chapter 3. First Matthew 3 and then John 3. Both are records of the ministry of John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, we find John the Baptist preaching before Jesus began his public ministry. And then in John chapter 3, we find John preaching during Jesus' public ministry. First Matthew 3, we read the first 12 verses. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We turn now to John chapter 3. John 3. Begin reading at verse 25 through the end of the chapter. John 3, verse 25 through 36. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. 
Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You read that far in God's holy and inspired word on the basis of John the Baptist's teaching, as well as on the basis of all of Scripture, we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism. We turn now to Lord's Day 4. Lord's Day 4. Consider that this morning. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it, but man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in His just judgment temporally and eternally as He hath declared. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, His justice requires that sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment, of body and soul. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, I preach to you a sermon this morning about the doctrine of hell. It is about the awful and fearful truth of the wrath of God against sin and sinners. It is about the ire of God coming with extreme and everlasting heat upon the sinner to cause 
indescribable agony. The Word of God this morning is about the reality, the real place of hell. My beloved, I do not take pleasure in the doctrine of hell. But I must preach it this morning in its horror. And that for good reason. First, because it is included in the inspired Word of God. The Heidelberg Catechism leads us to this doctrine in the inspired Word of God. This doctrine of hell is part of the whole counsel of God that I must preach and preach in its truth as revealed in God's Word. It is what John the Baptist preached as we saw. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 10 and following, we read, Also now the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And then John the Baptist preaches, He, not just God, but Jesus Christ Himself, He, in verse 12, He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will come not only to baptize with the Holy Spirit, but also with fire. In John 3.36, the last verse we read, John the Baptist preached, He that believeth not that Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John the Baptist preached it again and again through his ministry as part of his preaching of Christ Jesus and the Gospel. And not only did John the Baptist preach it, but children, do you know who preached hell? More than anyone recorded in Scripture. Or Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ, who many evangelicals today claim is too loving, too compassionate, too merciful to talk about hell, much less send people to hell, the Bible shows us Jesus Christ Himself preaching about hell more than any other prophet and apostle. He not only spoke through those prophets and apostles, that's who was speaking through those prophets and apostles, Jesus Himself, but He Himself during His earthly ministry preached about this grim reality. And so, because it is in God's Word, because it comes forth from the very mouth of Jesus Christ Himself, I must preach it. And secondly, related, I must preach hell because God uses it as His means to bring His people to repentance and faith. He uses the preaching of hell also to bring His people to repentance and faith. In the Canons, Article 14, we find the word threatenings. It hath pleased God by the preaching of the Gospel to begin this work of grace in us, so He preserves, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of His Word, by meditation thereon, by the exhortations and threatenings and promises thereof, as well as by the use of sacraments. One of the tools that God uses is the preaching of the threat of hell. That threat of hell comes to those who are impenitent in sin. And as John the Baptist called the church of his day, 
the church of His day He called to repentance and threatened them with hell to come. So also the Word of God must come to the church of today and those who are impenitent. The calling is repent or perish in hell. Thirdly, I must preach hell because it humbles us to see the greatness of our sin. Is sin really that bad? We might ask. The doctrine of hell says to us, yes, what we might call a white lie, the murmuring we might minimize as something that everyone else does, the anger, any doctrinal error, pride, according to the justice of God deserves hell. That's how bad sin is. It's not a trifle. Hell, the doctrine of hell humbles us to see how great our sins and miseries are. But then at the same time, it magnifies the wondrous work of Jesus Christ who took our hell to save us. Knowing about God's just judgment of hell is to know our misery. Remember, that is the section in the catechism we are on. Lord's Day 4 is the last Lord's Day in this first section on how great my sins and miseries are. We have seen already in Lord's Day 2, the catechism explained, our misery as sin itself, our total depravity. We're prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. That was Lord's Day 2. The law reveals it to us. In Lord's Day 3, last time, we saw the source of that depravity, or in other words, who is to blame for this depravity? And we saw the Word of God point to Adam, but also point to our own hearts. Sin is not God's fault. It is our fault. And today, the Hutterberg Catechism takes us to the judgment for that sin and that depravity. That too is part of our misery. Consider with me Lord's Day 4, the doctrine there under the theme, the just wrath of God. The just wrath of God. First, the wrath. Second, the justice. And then finally, the mercy. The wrath, the justice, and then the mercy. What mankind deserves for sin can be summed up with that one word, wrath. Wrath. God's wrath. The Heidelberg Catechism describes that word, though it doesn't use it in the English. It describes the word wrath, especially in answer 10. That's our focus this morning on answer 10. That brings up the main topic of Lord's Day 4. Three phrases notice especially in Lord's Day, or question and answer 10. Three phrases which describe what wrath is. Or the wrath of God. First, notice that phrase, His terrible displeasure. 
He is terribly displeased with our sin. That's the first description of wrath. Second, notice, punish them in His just judgment. That's the second description of wrath. It is punishment. And then third, notice the quote of Deuteronomy 27, cursed, cursed is everyone. That's the third description of wrath in answer 10. We go through those phrases to understand in our mind the wrath of God. Put together, you have a definition from the very catechism itself of the wrath of God. God's wrath is the infinite God's terrible displeasure with sin and the sinner, whereby He justly curses and punishes them, or punishes Him. Think first of that terrible displeasure of God. Terrible anger. That word displeasure can be translated. God's wrath is first of all what is within Himself. What is within His person and being. It is the attitude of His heart that is a terrible displeasure or anger. A holy heat against sin and the sinner. The word wrath in the Old Testament is a picturesque word. It helps us think of wrath in human terms. The word wrath is literally nostrils. And so you picture a man who has his nostrils that are flared and his nostrils that are breathing in and out vigorously, vehemently. There's great agitation within this man, pictured especially by nostrils. And soon that will erupt from that person. That's the word wrath. And it's attributed to God. Though He is not human. Often Scripture speaks of this wrath as that which is kindled. And the word wrath therefore should bring to our mind something like a fire. A hot displeasure. God is a consuming fire that is within Him. Nostrils. Fire. Those give us pictures in our mind that help us understand in human terms what God's wrath is. But although we may picture them in human terms, we must recognize that God's wrath is different than a human's wrath. Understand this. For one, it is much greater than a human's anger. Extreme, the catechism says, of an infinite degree, hotter than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, which, bur- which he caused to burn seven times hotter when those three friends of Daniel were cast within. Far hotter than that is to an infinite degree the heat of God's anger is. Another difference is that the wrath of God is perfectly pure. It's really an aspect of His holiness. So that while human anger is often unrighteous and sinful and selfish, God's anger or wrath is perfectly pure. But this, this this difference is especially important. God's wrath is unchanging. It is a constant within His being and person. It's not that which intensifies and then lets up. 
His anger is not a human anger that heats up and then it's cool. It's not an unstable emotion, out of control, as it is in human beings. But God's wrath is that which is a constant heat to the infinite degree against sin and the sinner. That's what the catechism means when it describes wrath as He is terribly displeased. Secondly, think of wrath as His curse. That's the catechism's explanation of wrath. It quotes Deuteronomy 27 when it says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So as God breathes His holy wrath out of Himself against sin and the sinner, He doesn't just breathe it out, but He speaks as He breathes. That's what a curse is. To curse is to speak words of wrath. And perhaps we think upon it in human terms again, which is acceptable, though not to be identical to what God does or identify with what God does. In human terms, we speak curses sometimes. We ought not. We ought not. We speak a curse. And our curses are ineffectual. We might say something like, go to hell. And that doesn't do anything that is to send someone to hell, though it does hurt. And it's sin on our part. But God curses And His curses are effectual. So that when He says, out of His holy ire, go to hell. It is effectual. It happens. God's wrath is His displeasure within is that which He speaks as a curse. And third, the catechism describes God's wrath as His punishment, a just punishment. That which another suffers. God with His displeasure causes the sinner to experience pain. Pain indescribable. There is a retribution, a paying back. A full amount of burning agony deserved for each sin. Wrath is the outpouring of His anger upon the soul and body of the sinner. What we sang about, it is the cup, the cup of God's wrath, which is like molten lava, or a very bitter wine with dregs and sediment on the bottom, which He takes and He pours forth. No, He empties out upon another It's not simply against sin, though it is. It's against the sinner. It's that wrath you see. It's that wrath which makes up hell. It's that wrath which is the essence of hell. We often think of hell as fire. That would be bad enough, but an earthly fire is only a picture. Hell is worse 
Hell is a place where God, yes, separates, He separates Himself from the sinner in the sense that he is, He's not the sinner's friend, but an enemy. But you see, hell also is that God is present with His omnipresence. In fact, what makes hell so fearful is exactly that God is present with His holy ire against the sinner. To curse, to punish forever. This hell, the impenitent sinner, can already sense during his lifetime. John 3, verse 36, which we read, as John the Baptist preaches about this hell, or this wrath of God, says this, He that believeth not the Son shall not see life. And then pay attention to that last phrase. But the wrath of God abideth on him. That word abideth is in the present continuing action. It, trans, it is translated, the wrath of God is abiding or is remaining upon a person. It doesn't stop. It's not just at a future date. But John the Baptist says it is right now continuing. The wrath of God presses upon the consciences of the unbeliever or the impenitent. And although hell is not yet experienced in its fullness, it's far worse, it is felt. There's a heat felt on the consciences of the wicked, of the impenitent. And though consciences are seared, the Scripture says, and there is a certain numbing that happens to a degree every believer feels. He knows, he senses the coals of fire as it were above his head or the cup of wrath about to be poured out or to overflow upon him. The catechism also speaks of that when it speaks of this judgment of God temporally or temporally. He will punish them in his just judgment temporally. That doesn't mean temporarily, children, but it means in this time, in this lifetime, the unbeliever and even the impenitent person who continues in sin within the church externally senses the wrath of God close, abiding, unless he repents. All things, all things the believer knows works for his good. But all things the unbeliever senses works for his destruction. For God hath set him in slippery places. Psalm 73. It's no common grace when beautiful weather and earthly prosperity and wealth comes upon the impenitent unbeliever. It is very really the wrath of God being poured out or filling up His cup. The slippery road of life careens Him through shallow pleasures, 
quickly toward his death, where the grave will consume his body, and the pit of God's fire will swallow his soul. That through life, and then the impenitent sinner faces the wrath of God immediately at death, to a greater degree than he felt on this earth, the soul is plunged to eternal death afterward, immediately at death. In his parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus made that clear in Luke 16. As soon as Lazarus died, he went to heaven as to his soul. As soon as that rich man died, he went to hell. The soul does not sleep the soul is not annihilated at death. The soul continues to exist. The soul continues to be conscious to join, as Peter says in second on first Peter three nineteen, the spirits in prison to endure that wrath, that hell. John the Baptist said in John 3.36, it abideth, the wrath of God abideth on him so that the impenitent sinner at death doesn't get a break. doesn't get a break from feeling God's wrath. But it continues to abide with him to a greater degree at death. But that's not all. Scripture most of all speaks of the wrath of God to come at the end of time. When Jesus returns, body and soul, soul and body, to experience this wrath of God to the greatest of extents, unfathomable, inexpressible. Jesus himself preached that in John 5, 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, he said, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth. And they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Matthew 10, verse 28, Fear not him that killeth the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. When Jesus returns, He will do this. He will judge sinners, soul and body in hell. It is a real place. It is meant when Scripture describes it to turn our stomachs. Scripture uses this word. It uses the word Gehenna. That's the word for hell. Gehenna literally means the valley of Hinnom which was an actual location at the southern part of the city of Jerusalem. It was a valley that descended from the walls of that city of Jerusalem. And in the, in the days of King Ahaz, you remember, in that valley of Hinnom, King Ahaz burned his children. He sacrificed humans to Molech. In Jesus' day, it became a dump, a garbage heap which stunk 
It was where trash and, and carcasses were brought, where maggots and flies were, and where there was a continuous fire. Scripture uses this word Gehenna to describe hell, to be a picture of hell. A bottomless pit where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth and wailing. A lake of fire and brimstone where there shall be torment day and night forever and ever. These are the descriptions of Scripture. These are the earthly pictures, which means, which means this. Hell is not literally all of this. It is worse than this. It is not a purgatory that one can escape after suffering enough. If you find yourself in purgatory, be sure it is hell that will, will last forever. It is not a place where you are burned for a while and afterward annihilated or cease to exist. It is a real place where God brings His wrath upon sinners, soul and body, with extreme, that is, everlasting punishment. Why do I preach this? That you may repent while it is yet today Flee from the wrath to come, from the destruction you deserve. As John the Baptist preached, I must preach, the axe is laid to the root of the tree to be cut down and cast into the fire. If you are continuing impenitent in sin, then yes, the Word of God comes to you who are impenitent, brazen in your sin, repent or perish. You ought to feel the heat of God's fire against sin and the sinner. Hell will be worse for those who hear the preaching of the Gospel and yet reject it. Woe, Jesus Himself said, to Bethsaida and Chorazin, that is those who the preaching comes to, for, the, for, the, for it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for thee. But fear not. Fear not. You who turn in true sorrow for sin, to Jesus Christ. The calling is not that you fear, but the Spirit has worked in your hearts to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. But it is to fear if you are brazen in your sin and you excuse it and you insist on pointing out someone else's instead of your own. And you had better know what John the Baptist says, the wrath of God abideth. Sinful mankind who hears this doctrine of hell, God's wrath, a call to repentance. But this is what sinful mankind does by nature instead of repenting. 
The catechism leads us to this. Sinful man responds not only by excusing his sin, but by challenging God's justice in this. It's unfair, sinful man says, questioning God's justice. The first question or challenge of God's justice, the catechism takes us to in question nine. And this is the sinner, you can picture him, raising up his fists and saying to God, how is this just, first of all, that God the judge would require require certain laws which we can't obey and then punish us for it? Is God the judge fair in the first place by demanding of us such a law that we cannot obey? Isn't that law stringent and strict, requiring perfection? Yes. Isn't isn't it true that we as mankind are totally depraved and we can't even want to obey this law of ourselves? We can't love God, but we are prone to hate Him and our neighbor. Isn't it unfair, therefore, that God would require of us who are unable this law? These commandments. And you know the answer. We've discussed it before in previous Lord, a previous Lord's Day. God made man able. God made man in His own image after His likeness with true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He made Adam able to obey those commandments. But we in Adam not only rejected those commandments, but we threw away We forfeited, we discarded the ability to obey the law. God's not unjust. Continue requiring of mankind obedience to the law. But here's a more simple answer to that question. Is God unjust? to require from man his law which he cannot perform? Here's a simple answer. Which a catechism doesn't give, but Scripture gives. Romans 9, verse 20. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? That's the answer of Scripture. Which means this, children. Who do you think you are to accuse God of injustice? That's what it means. Who does man think he is that he dares to even question that God is just in requiring of His law and then punishing when man does not obey that law? God, by very definition of who He is, is just. And the reason that man ever thinks he's unjust or cannot understand God's justice is because of man's own weakness and foolishness. That's the only reason. God is always just by definition of being a God, being perfect. He is just. 
We may not challenge His justice. And that leads us to that second question that is most important here. A question against God's justice also. Will God suffer, question 10, such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Won't God simply wink at sin or ignore it and leave it be? The question is clear when we remember that simple answer. God, by very definition, is just. And justice is that attribute of God whereby He's consistent with Himself and His law. And therefore, if we disobey that law, then justice from God deserves punishment. It would be unjust of God not to punish. He must punish since He is that perfectly just God. Sin is really that bad. Sin is really this grievous that God's justice demands of it such wrath, such heat, such curse. Such punishment. That's the main application. You see sin as really that bad, that grievous. God's justice says so, and don't you dare question it, oh man. Sin is to hate God. Sin is to fly against the face of the very God, and as a believer, against the one who has saved us. Sin is the sin against His grace. Sin is to rebel, the catechism puts it. It's rebellion against the Almighty. It is wickedness. Do you understand how great your sins are? No, you don't. But you better understand it when you understand hell and what you and I deserve for our sins. The catechism leads us to understand that better when it speaks out, speaks of how sin is grievous not only because of what it is, but who sin is against. Sin, answer 11, which is committed against the most high majesty of God, be punished also with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The greater the person against whom you sin, the greater the sin, the greater the crime, and therefore, greater the punishment. Sin is high treason 
against the King of Heaven. It is to throw yourself on Satan's side to attack the God of heaven and earth and the doctrine of hell of all doctrines should make us realize that that is awful. It is gross. One single sin against the most high majesty of God justly deserves the heat of God's ire brought as a curse upon us and suffered eternally. One sin does. And the Catechism says we have original sin as well as actual sins. That's a lot of sin. We daily increase our debt. Next time you come to the crossroads of sin, next time you stand at those crossroads deciding, should I, should I sin or should I flee from sin? Should I repent or should I continue? Remember hell. Remember how bad sin is as God reveals it through this doctrine of hell. It's not a trifle. It's not minor. Sin is no small thing. God's just judgment and hell proves it. And hell also proves to you and to me how much we still need Jesus. How desperately, how desperately you and I still need Jesus every day. We need the mercy of Jesus Christ. Is not God then also merciful? The Catechism asks. That's the third question. And although it can come as a challenge, let's see it as a plea. First of all, is God indeed merciful? Indeed, He is. Indeed, He is in Jesus Christ. That's not to say that His mercy comes into conflict with His justice. That's not to say that since He is merciful, His mercy will trump His justice. That's how many evangelicals speak of it. They try to excuse sin by using His mercy is that which comes into conflict with His justice. But here is the beauty of God and the beauty of the Gospel found in one religion and one religion alone. And I dare say, true Reformed Christianity which shows forth the true Jesus Christ. The just God 
unchanging in His justice, full of ire against sin, while He is continuing in His just punishment and wrath against sin, has mercy upon us. So merciful He is that for the salvation of His people, He Himself, as the second person of the Trinity, took on our human flesh, united Himself to our soul and body, so that in that real human soul and body, upheld by His Godhead, but in that real human soul and body, He could and He did suffer. All that just wrath, that ire, that curse, that punishment, that suffering that we deserve. Wrath, wrath as, as no human has ever experienced it before. He took a wrath so hot, so intense, so extreme as the Catechism calls it, that our human minds cannot come close to understanding it. Father God poured forth upon God the Son, now emptied upon His own Son the dregs of the cup of God's wrath, the fullness of it, all of the just punishment upon Him. So that before before this Son of God took it in all of its fullness, He cried. Hear that cry. Oh, if it be possible, if it be possible to save the sheep any other way, take, take this cup, this wrath, this punishment, this ire, this, this Gehenna, this these worms, this gnashing of teeth and weeping, this darkness, this pit, take this, take this from me if it be possible. If it be possible, let this cup pass. But lo, it was not. It was not possible. Because for the salvation of His people, the fullness of hell had to be suffered. The justice of God had to be satisfied. And so the Son of God said, Not my will, but Thy will be done. And when he hung on that cross, justice and mercy met, were kissed, came together, and shines forth to us today the fullness of God's justice and mercy to us who believe. Next time you come to the crossroads of sin, should I sin? Should I not? 
Should I continue? Should I repent? Remember, not just hell, that which sin deserves, but remember that which the merciful God in Jesus Christ took for you. This is our God. This is our beautiful Savior who rescues us not only from the depths of hell, but raises up our souls and bodies to the highest of heights. Enemies to be burned eternally, made as friends before His glory forever. That's how great our Savior is. Instead of temporal punishment all our life, all things work for our good. Instead of hell to our soul immediately at death, our soul is translated into glory. Instead of soul and body in the depths of hell when He returns, enter thou, He will say, into the joy of the Lord. Do you believe this gospel? The call to repent and the call to believe. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page. And you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail.com. Thank you.